I like the idea of horror movies. I don't actually end up watching that many horror movies because when I watch a trailer, I'll build something up in my mind much bigger than it actually is in reality. And then I'll probably wimp out and read the Wikipedia entry about the movie instead of actually watching the film, even though whenever I actually do end up watching these movies, they're never actually as scary as the images that I've created in my head, just from the idea of them. It's a neurosis. These are some of my confessions. But I do like the idea of horror films, because they are often movies where the director or the creator is trying to sneak in something profound to say about society while dressing it up in a lot of blood and gore. Sometimes they're themes that are applied by the screenwriter or the director themselves, and sometimes they're just things that we as members of the audience or critics project onto the movie. But the end result is that we see ourselves through kind of a funhouse mirror. In his new collection of poetry, The Gleaming of the Blade, Christian J. Collier examines his world through a cinematic lens. In one poem, he takes on the perspective of one of Jason's victims in Friday the 13th, Part 8, no less. In another, he writes from the voice of Candyman, an iconic screen villain. These are engaging and subversive poems, but he's also revealing a deeper truth. The way that American society can turn black men into villains, into monsters. Throughout this collection, the Chattanooga-based poet examines the fine line between intimacy and violence, between love and hate, divisions that are often wrought by skin color. Today on The Reckon Interview, we'll hear a few poems from Christian J. Collier. We'll talk about his life in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the artistic community that he's helping to build there. And we'll discuss the deeper truths that he's revealing through his work. So let's go ahead and dig into this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Christian J. Collier, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thanks for having me. You have a new collection of poetry out called The Gleaming of the Blade, and many of these poems in your book deal with being a Black man in the South. You write about being a target of violence, the idea of being fetishized and loved while also being loathed and, and kind of imagined as a monster. And throughout the book, there's the sense of living alongside ghosts and demons of the past, which is something I think we see mind a lot in Southern literature. Tell me about putting these poems together and what it was like for you as an artist, but also just as a man to turn, you know, traumatic experiences of the South into art. The book went through so many different incarnations. I think I started really writing towards it around 2015. Obviously, you know, if you rewind the clock, you have Michael Brown and the, the advent of, of activism in, in Ferguson, and you have social media being utilized to document what's happening in communities where these these violent acts are taking place. I think as the evolution of, of that is taking place, the more of what I wanted to say and more of my own experience started to factor into the work. So I think that that my own relationship to the country, the region, myself, really started to, to change as well. And when I, I took the manuscript apart the last time before I submitted it to the, the Bull City competition, I, I set certain rules for myself in terms of, of revising and reordering. I think maybe the most prominent one was uh, was to not to come to play and, and to, to be as, as honest and intentional as, as possible. And I think that if you are going to address something like race, you know, and there's a certain challenge or, or obligation to kind of, and whatever angle you're taking, I think there's a certain obligation and challenge to, to kind of get it right. And when I'm in composing, 
I am thinking of myself as, as kind of a, like a film director. Like I'm, I'm behind a camera and I'm crafting the shot for, for whoever's on the other end of the poem. I was really interested in, in creating an experience where I am putting the reader in the driver's seat and they're feeling all of the things that the speaker is feeling. They're, they're witnessing all of the things that the, the speaker is witnessing. I really wanted that to be the, the most effective tool in really just engaging whoever's on the other end of the poem. And it wasn't really until recently, like literally maybe last week, I was talking to someone and it just hit me that, you know, I am so tremendously proud of the book. I'm so tremendously proud of the work that's in it. And even that took me a while to realize. I think I'd, I'd been so close to it for so long. But just the realization that I don't want to say that all the poems are autobiographical. The vast majority of them come from events that actually happened to me and things that I've lived through. It hit me for the first time that this book wouldn't exist without racism and being fetishized and, and things of that nature. You know, so that, that's kind of a strange thing. But I think that's kind of the nature of the blues, though, right? Like you take the harshness and you make something beautiful out of it that can be evocative for somebody else, you know? So it's, it's a wild thing to be like, without these things happening and without these things happening to me in this region, this book doesn't exist. You feel the weight of not just, you know, your autobiographical experiences like you were talking about, but, you know, generations of experiences of Black people in the South. You talk about, you know, in one poem that we'll read later on, you know, the, the way that your parents were targeted after the election, you know, somebody threw a newspaper on the roof as a way of punishing them. But it's interesting to hear you describe your approach to it as being like a film director, because at least a couple of the poems in here are really rooted in film and specifically in, in horror movie tropes and iconography. In one poem, you write about analogy for Julius Gall, who's a Black man that's killed by Jason at the beginning of Friday the 13th, part eight, uh, which you made it all the way through all eight <laughs> of the Friday the 13th to get there. So, But then another one you write from the persona of Candyman, the iconic horror movie villain. Would you mind reading that one for us before we talk about it? Candyman Blues. Candyman Blues. Think of the commitment it takes to call any one name five consecutive times. Think of the desire at the heart of making it a mantra. What they call me is a sacred word built on blues and blood, like any black man born and buried in the South. They say candy man enough times and I am obliged to appear because they made a God out of me. How can I not come when summoned, when prayed to? How can I not grant them their wish to see my face Mind the last they'll see, mind their guide away from this life. Many call me monster. Who made me into one? What name should we ascribe to those whose brutality transformed me? If I am what they say I am, it is because I did not know my place back then. Because I made love to a white woman, molded a daughter in the kiln of her womb. Before I became a monster on their tongues, I was the monster drinking in their sun. Now, my place is in the dark. The shadows and I keep company until the anxious chant of a curious mouth calls me out. Now, I live in the whispers of my congregation, in the quiet notes of their barely breathed hymns. And, you know, for, for listeners who may or may not have seen the movie, 
Candyman is is like a Bloody Mary type figure. If you say his name five times, he appears and <laughs> and brutally murders you. <laughs> um, but you chose to write this poem from his perspective. And so I'm curious what drew you to his story and what you were trying to say about the South and society with this poem. So a couple of years ago, as a joke, and it actually, it actually started with the, the Julius Gaw poem, Friday the 13th, 8 was on. And just as a joke, I, I said, you know, I'm going to start writing poems about the Black characters in horror movies. You know, a couple of days later, I started writing a, about Julius Gaw, and I realized, like, man, this gives me a really, a really interesting lens to use and a, a way to kind of get at other things in terms of, of race in the country. And after I finished that one, I was like, oh, this is, I kind of, I kind of like this one. And let's, I wonder, I wonder what else I got. You know, I started looking at, at other characters and uh, I've written one about Blackula and then uh, the Candyman one emerged. I thought it was such an interesting voice to kind of step into. I'm pulling a little bit from the, the first two movies because the, the first one, and I'm totally nerding out on, on everybody here. But in the first one, you know, it, it's rooted in Chicago. Really, you have to get to the second one when it brings the story back to, to New Orleans. I think that it's it's a really interesting way to kind of step into looking at, at the country and, and how so many of the things function in it. Daniel Robitaille, you know, his, his cardinal sin was having a, a, a relationship with a woman that society told him that he couldn't. And as a result of that, you know, he's, he's brutally murdered and then becomes the Candyman, right? I don't think that that is too terribly different from a lot of what's happening now. I think, you know, we have, we're in the, the age of critical race theory and the, the, the gross distortion of, of what that is. And that's leading to a lot of good, well-intentioned and knowledgeable people being driven out of positions in, in schools and, and books are being banned and everything like that. I don't feel like that's astronomically different from what led Daniel Robitaille becoming a, a monster. And the same people who enacted that fate upon him looked at him as the monster, right? So I think that that's a really interesting way to, to kind of go about it. it. It gave me some space to kind of walk around in. One of the things that I enjoy most about horror, because I feel like when, when horror is done, it's done well, it ultimately looks at society in some way. And I think that it kind of disarms us because on face value, we're like, oh, you know, there, there's some sort of monster. There's something that is supernatural and but really, if you if you peel back the layers, you're like, oh, this is like this is super, you know, like not supernatural, but this is supernatural, right? Like this is speaking directly to the human experience, and I think that that's really excellent. I think that it's it's so smart when when it's done in in a really effective fashion. You have other poems in here where you talk about, and if you have said that some of these are autobiographical, I assume your experiences, you know, being made a monster by the father of, of a white woman that you were having a relationship with, threatening to blow your head off if he catched you laying your hand upon her again. And then there's another one called Indoctrination that's about a relationship with a woman who is from out of town. And I thought maybe you could read us that one. Indoctrination. Do you remember? We defied every angry eye fixed upon us inside that diner. The scent of sizzling pork in the air. Those stairs said the region's ghosts were still alive. My flesh belonged too much to the sun to be with you. We sinned and stood guilty, betraying our complexions before the quiet ire of the jury. Our presence 
was treason. You were from the north and didn't know the language down here, the field of thorns you had waded into, how being a white girl with the wrong skin man was the equivalent of dancing in front of the dark O of a cannon's mouth, listening to a flame chew away at the coil of a fuse. You know, I think there's a comforting fiction that we'd like to tell ourselves that we've moved past this sense of segregation. But it does seem like relationships between Black people and white people still draws out this violent reaction from some people. You have other poems in here about, you know, a, a white woman asking the narrator to leave before her father gets home for a birthday party. What is that like for you, navigating these relationships where because of the color of your skin. There's another one that I think you're swiping through on Tinder. And as soon as the um, woman realizes that you're Black, the conversation stops. Tell us about that experience. I think so much of what the, the book is doing is examining the ways that the Black body is both seen and unseen. In a number of cases, the links that other people will go to not to see it, right? And I think that that's pretty accurate in terms of... Um, of being a brown person in, in specifically in the South, we inhabit a lot of spaces where the color of our skin enters the room before we do. That elicits a number of reactions from a, a number of people. And uh, for some reason, it's, it's always an interesting thing to, to kind of navigate um, because, you know, depending on, on where you are, you're, you're never really sure of, of what's going to happen, but you're always aware that anything could at any moment. I don't know exactly. I mean, and, and that's been the case for, for a long, long time. You know, I think that that's something that is, is really fascinating to me because it's really if you if you boil it down, it's literally we're, we're just people inhabiting a space. And uh, I, I had a conversation with the poet Philip Metris uh, a couple of years ago, and, and he said something that has kind of you know, become a chorus in my life. And that's, you know, really, there's no place that's designed for anyone, right? Like, there is no nirvana that just, we go there, oh, all, all, everything is perfectly made for us, right? That place doesn't exist. So really, if we acknowledge that, we, we know that our existence is predicated upon sharing a space, a number of spaces with people who don't necessarily look or, or believe or, or whatever like we do. And I think that it's a, a strange dichotomy to just kind of prioritize one's own fears. And I think a lot of times the irrationality of those fears in order to exclude others from having access to the, the same things and, and the same spaces and, and goods and such. And uh, I don't know. I think that that's also, you know, and, and the South is, is kind of like the micro, but that's that's an inherently American issue, you know, too. It's such a strange thing to, to navigate. Like when I was in, I think this was my senior year of high school. I, w I was on a field trip. Um, I was in some club. My friend who was black uh, and I were having this conversation and uh, we're, we're the last ones off the school bus. And I think we were the only two black people on that trip. We're getting off the bus and this teacher leans in and, and she's like, don't you boys get into any trouble in there? Because we, we had stopped off at the mall to get something to eat before coming back to, to Chattanooga. I immediately like snapped on her. 
And if you've ever like simultaneously seen somebody like in fear, but trying to maintain their composure, that, that was this woman. Another teacher comes over to me, a black teacher, and she's like, what's wrong? And I tell her, oh, this person is racist. She just did this. That teacher said, I can't believe, you know, I can't believe her. She's been doing this for years. And then that teacher turned to me and, and begged me not to say anything to anybody. And I was like, I'm going to tell everyone. And granted, this was this was over 20 years ago. So this is a much different age. This is before cell phones are a thing, really. And and you can't immediately document what's happening to you. The school worked really hard to defend that teacher who did this racist thing to me, a child at that point. Right. So that wasn't all that long ago. That was in the 21st century. So it's strange that I never had any interaction with that teacher before. She didn't know me from Adam. You know, like I spoke at our graduation, (laughs) you know, like I made good grades. I was a, a dear role model. But for some reason, this woman felt compelled to go out of her way to try to put us in a place that she felt we needed to be in. And then she had institutional support to protect her from any blowback and consequence. And I think that that's also something that continues to happen today. So that's what it's like. It's it's always knowing that even when you're minding your own business, even when you're just you know trying to make it from from one day to the next, somebody's emotions or, or whatever drives those emotions can just it can end up being not just a thing, but a real serious thing. There's another poem where you talk about a relationship that you have with, with a woman and this fear and anxiety that you have that if y'all got into a fight she might or would respond by calling you a racial slur and so it seems like there's a you know a, a psychological barrier to intimacy to relationships with with anybody because of things like that like you were talking about you know this long-standing societal and institutional racism that that makes its way into every part of society yeah absolutely you know and uh, i think that Emotion is is such a powerful thing. And I believe it was uh, Saul Williams, the poet Saul Williams, who said that uh, beliefs are the police of the mind. And I think that it's really hard for people to, you know, especially if, if, if you've come from a family where, you know, you might casually throw around the N word or, or, you know, you just, you know, you, you place those nuggets in, in people's lives, even if you have somebody who's well-intentioned and well-meaning and they're, they're, I'm, I'm not like my parents. Yeah. I mean, and that may very well be true, but in my experience, a lot of people can definitely flip a switch and become their parents when, when necessary, or if, if they ever need to hurt somebody or, or, you know, get their way or whatever. I think that that's something that maybe they're not always aware of, but, you know, push comes to shove. They are aware of it because I think they utilize it a good bit of the time. And I think that, you know, it's, it's just another, another thing that makes relationships you know, and, and relationships, even if you people of the same race relationships are, are so tricky to navigate anyway, because here's this entire body that has their own insecurities and their own flaws and, and all of that, you know, comes, comes to the table. But I think that when you have people who are choosing not to acknowledge race and, and racism in their own hangups and, and, and things like that and really interrogate that, it can definitely become fodder that uh, it gets utilized in, in the heat of the moment in an argument. 
Coming up after the break, more poetry and conversation from Christian J. Collier. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. You know, we've talked about physical love and intimacy, and you also, you know, you brought up this idea that there's no place that is for everyone. And so you have a poem in here that's about love of place and what it feels like when a place does not show love to you called Chattanooga Blues. And that's the one that I hope you'll read for us next. Absolutely. Chattanooga Blues. And it begins with an epigraph by Christian Morgenstern. Home is not where you live, but where they understand you. I've seen too much of this place and its people to feel truly comfortable here. I have known the face of the darkness that lives within the city limits, stared into its eyes, and perhaps that is why I have such a difficult time calling this home. My tongue is barely even able to hold that word steady, small in the arena of my mouth. The large rebel flag that stands to this day like a sentinel outside the tiny brown house across the street from the elementary school where I played basketball or the cotton a white stranger quietly dropped in my father's lawn one night while my family slept to remind us of our place, not to dream too brightly, or the manager of the small cafe downtown telling my Caucasian friends if they did not do something quick and decisive, black people would claim and corrupt the very soul of the country. All of this, all of these deep blemishes still remind me of the gospel of my mother. She once told me never to fall in love with something or someone incapable of loving me back. I cannot recall how many years my body has remained outside the full caress of this place. It grew weary ages ago for the day when this city, this almost home, could show me its wide heart had finally tired of laboring to mute the percussive music of mine. Did you grow up in Chattanooga? I know that's where you call home now. Is this? I did. Well, so what was that like? You know, I mean, you talked about that teacher on the field trip, the, the stories and the images that you conjure in this poem, you know, make it, I mean, you say specifically, you never truly felt comfortable there. So I'm curious about you know, what, what keeps you grounded in Chattanooga? What keeps you rooted there? And, and what your relationship with the city has been like and is like today? Sure. Yeah. You know, Chattanooga is, is an interesting place. There have been a, a couple of black men hanged from, uh, from the Walnut Street Bridge here. Um, there have been race riots. Uh, you know, the, the boxer Jack Johnson came through here and there's, there's a riot because of that. But also, you know, more recently, like in the 80s, you know, some racist guys went around trying to shoot black women and largely were were acquitted of that. So our racist past isn't necessarily that deep in the past. You know, Chattanooga is is a place that I, I believe in. I've worked really hard to, you know, I grew up here. I moved away to go to college and then I moved back in, in 2006. Since about 2009, uh, I've been working to do what I can to help the creative arts uh, scene. And I've done a lot of, of programming in terms of arts and culture. And I think that part of that is to 
to try to appease like teenage me. If I were 15 years old again, what would I like to see in the city? And um, so a lot of what I've done is has been trying to uh, just bring different things to to try to shift the culture in in, in that regard. But you know, Chattanooga is, is a place that. As much as it has kind of taken some steps in terms of becoming more uh, progressive and, and more inclusive, there are a number of things that are just really astronomically frustrating. I think I still kind of feel like an alien here, and part of me kind of likes that. You know, I don't, I don't want to be too comfortable, but the other part is kind of like there are a number of things that I, I question and I don't really have any answers for, and I don't think that many other people necessarily do either, and that is something that... It's kind of a head scratcher to me. I think that the city has had an interesting relationship with, I think, who it really wants to be. So we, we've been having this this conversation about um, inclusion and diversity uh, for and at least ten years. There have been some some really great strides in in terms of kind of having programming and events that are are more reflective of the different demographics that we we have here. But we annually we have a, a festival called River Bend. A couple of weeks ago, uh, they announced the the lineup for this year's River Bend, and it's astronomically white. the The few black acts that they have, I think there may there might be three, maybe four. We'll say we'll say four to be generous. But um, out of those four, you have uh, the the War and Treaty, which is a group that I like, husband and wife duo. But they, they do kind of like Americana folk music. And uh, you have a guy who, who plays blues music largely for, for white audiences. So I think that is very problematic to, one, you, you have so few acts. And the, the few acts that you have are really there, I think, to kind of satisfy a white demographic. You know, and I, I think that that's something that's very problematic. If you, you're only interested in, in having diversity that appeases a white gaze, then what's the point of you really doing diversity? And I, I think that, that it sends a really strange message because I, I feel like what you're saying is that we don't feel safe having things that we don't understand that have no interest in understanding. We just don't like them. Especially since I'm guessing all of their kids are listening to hip hop and rap. I mean, and even a lot of the adults probably are too, even if that's those aren't the acts that they're wanting to invite. Maybe not. Maybe not. I don't know Chattanooga that well, but... That's how I feel about so many of these things. You know, I, I that's how I feel about all of the hoopla over critical race theory and, and things like that. Like, yeah, I mean, you can you can yank the hate you give from from the library. But one hate you give has been out since like 2015 and had a very popular uh, major motion picture. I think that if you gave kids the option now with, with so many things like Instagram being a visual medium, I think that kids are just going to like flip on, you know, FX and watch the movie <laughs> when they run it. But also, what is the soundtrack that those kids have playing in the car on the way to the school? So even if you're, you're pulling these um, these texts from the library, I think that that thing that you're really afraid of, they still have access to and they already have for a very long time. I can't name a, a style of music that that's pretty popular with, with kids now that doesn't have 808 drums and isn't influenced by trap music in some capacity. So what what's the conversation that we're really interested in having? I think that that's the thing that, that mostly gets me is I wish that we could just be honest about our intentions and things like that. I think that because it, it seems so strange to me to you have all of these things that 
one way, shape or form come back and, and largely impact uh, black and brown people. But the people who are really pushing those things don't want to say I have problems with black and brown people. So if you would know that you can't say I have issues with black and brown people because I don't want to get the blowback from saying that, you know, inherently what you're doing on some level is to demean and, and to target and harm black and brown people. I have much more respect for somebody who's like, no, I'm 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 with all the smoke. I don't care. This is how I feel, you know, and I think that so often you have people who like I, I'm not expecting Marsha Bradburn, Blackburn or uh, our, our governor to really push anything that is going to make my life better in any capacity. But on the flip side, I'm not I think that a lot of people who identify as, as liberal kind of and, you know, even well-intentioned, just end up having a closer seat to watch brutal things happen to me. So which one of those is, is really better? <laughs> you know, I just feel like we're, we're not really being honest about the conversations and, and the, the feelings that kind of drive these things. And I feel like that's always kind of been one of the problems when it comes to, to race and things that are affected by race. And race, like money, is one of those things that has its hands in so many different things. With that relationship that you have with Chattanooga, and maybe this ties back into what you said at the beginning of the conversation, you know, without everything that's happened, you wouldn't have produced this book. And I don't know if that, you know, where the scales tip in terms of what justifies or rationalizes what, but you have been able to produce great art as a result of living in Chattanooga. But what keeps you there as opposed to, you know, driving an hour and a half down south to uh, Atlanta or driving, you know, or moving to New York? What keeps you there? I mean, you talked about what you would have needed at 15, but what do you need now that keeps you there? Sure. Well, I moved, I moved back to, uh, to Chattanooga in, in 06 because of family. At the time, my, my niece had uh, just been born the previous year and uh, my parents are here and I didn't want to do the whole like distant uncle thing. And, and so I moved back with a, a two-year plane and I've, I've been here ever since. And, you know, now I'm, I'm married, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a house built and, um, my wife's family is here. My my family is still here. I feel like I've been able to hopefully do do a lot of good um, in terms of just helping artists and, and, and people of color. I started uh, an arts initiative a couple years ago called the Plug Poetry Project. That's uh, allowed me to do a, a six part docu series to kind of feature local writers while they're here. And I have a, a reading series that's kind of obviously been on hold because the world changed right with the, the pandemic, but um, started a reading series and I brought Julian Randall, Jericho Brown, Jose Olivares to uh, workshop with the community for free and uh, then do a featured reading and uh, a local poet would open. You know, I believe that if you want to, if you want to change culture and I think that, you know, Chattanooga isn't a place where poetry is just really easy and easy to find and accessible. So I wanted to, you know, make it a little bit easier for, for people to find and, and to benefit from. So obviously removing, you know, finance, you know, you don't have to go to Atlanta to go see uh, an Ocean Vuong do a reading. Like, let me let me try to bring some of those guys here in, in your own backyard and you can learn something on a craft level from them for free. And then later on, somebody from your own community can open for that person and 
So I'm giving them the chance to also kind of grab FaceTime and here are some things that helped me. Here are some things that maybe you should look at, you know. So I guess what the saying is, is be the change that you want to see. And uh, I think that that's allowed me to feel fulfilled uh, a little bit uh, well, in a significant way in, in terms of just being a, a good, productive, literary citizen. You know, I'm, I'm able to write here. And if I can, if I were to reach out to, you know, any venue, they would, you know, let me do whatever I wanted pretty much. And, and so I, I feel like, you know, creatively, a number of the, the things that I want to do, I can. And, and without having to jump through too many hoops, I mean, I still have to jump through hoops for for some things, but I think that I'm in a really good position and I'm, I'm really blessed in a number of ways. And I think that the, the work that I make, a good bit of it is informed by this place, but I think that the audience tends to be well beyond this place. And I think that that's another blessing too. Well, I know Chattanooga is a richer place because you were there doing that work. As our last question, you know, we've talked about Candyman, Jason and Blackula. Give us your top five horror movies. Well, the, the beauty of this question is that I'm just going to give like five that I like. You can't really go wrong with, with just saying like your favorites. So off the top of my head, I'll give you uh, The Conjuring, the first one. I thought that that was really good. I will give you Hellraiser. Uh, I'll give you Event Horizon. The The shift in that movie was just incredible. Also, you know, space horror is a, is a really interesting and, and, and hard genre. I give you The Exorcist. And I will give you, I'll give you a recent favorite of mine, relatively recent, a Korean film called Thirst, one of the best vampire films I've, I've ever seen. Okay, well, thank you so much, Christian. And um, let's see, you, you're doing a reading that is in June, is that right? Yeah, we're, we're doing a, the release for, a physical release for, for the book, so June 16th. Great, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. And that's our show, folks. Special thanks to Christian J. Collier for making time to join us. His collection, The Gleaming of the Blade, is out now from Bull City Press. And he'll be doing a launch event in Chattanooga on June 16th. So head to his website, www.christianjcollier.com, for more info. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team over at Edit Audio. If you're enjoying our show, help us grow it by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you've got feedback or guest ideas, shoot me an email or find me on Twitter at at John Hammontree. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with me.